Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff of The Atavist, and I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky of longform.org. Hey there. And this week we have Aaron interviewing Paul Ford. Max. Paul Ford, blogging at ftrain.com since 1997, former editor at Harper's, also built the Harper's website, uh, is one of the sort of rare people in magazines who has been interested and engaged with and thinking about the technical side since the very start. And I think also if people have encountered Paul Ford in the last couple of years as readers, the two pieces that I feel like were all over the web and everyone was reading, one of them was about uh, conceiving children. It was a very personal essay. It was sort of personal and funny. And the other piece was called The Web is a Customer Service Medium, which uh, was really full of thinking about the way the web works and the way the publication on the web works, and there's sort of like two ends of the kind of things that he does. Yeah, in my uh, notes when I was um, preparing for this interview, I looked down during the interview and realized I had written, like in quotes, the web is a customer service medium. Is that true? <laughs> Which would have led me into a deep Chris Farley show moment um, with Paul. But he, he, was, uh, um, he was really game to talk about whatever, and uh, it's a really good interview. Let's get to it. here with Paul Ford. Um, we're at uh, ARC-90's offices in uh, Midtown Manhattan. We are drinking um, Diet Mountain Dew and Diet Dr. Pepper, I've respectively. Got the, I've got the Diet Dr. Pepper. Paul Ford's got the pepper. Yeah. It's, only, it's serving size is one can on this bad boy. So you, um, you returned to blogging today. For at least one post. For at least one post. Yeah. No, so everyone on the, uh, on the Internet, which is a large global network, uh, was talking about how no one blogs anymore. So by everyone, I mean people like Anil Dash, Tim Bray, John Udell, old school with a K, uh, bloggers. And uh, so I was like, all right, I'll write a blog post. You uh, about you blogging? A little bit about blogging, but then it turned into something about uh, rotary telephones, which is an interest of mine. Beyond rotary telephones, a large uh, a large focus of the piece seemed to be. Uh, the telephone book. And the telephone book. Always very exciting. The telephone, the telephone book as data structure. Exactly, because it's... Um, I have a lot of really strong memories of the telephone book and, and just sort of using it to explore the world and figure out... It's really... It was the blue pages. Do you remember the blue pages? Um, you know, I remember the object, not its functionality. Okay, so the blue pages. There weren't many of them. I think there maybe like 50 blue pages. But it would be all the different offices like in the town hall or all the uh, all the different parts of the hospital were all there it was all sort of nicely structured and so i don't know it just you'd, you'd 
It was this whole structure to the world in the, in the phone book. That's what I was writing about. Um, and uh, I don't know why in particular. This is why I kind of miss blogging, is that rotary telephones can pop in your head, and you can sit down and write something about rotary telephones, and it's kind of a little drama. I, I said this to you earlier, but when we originally conceived of doing this podcast, um, it was important to me that we talk both about writing itself and the ways that people are publishing writing. Um, mm-hmm. And you're a rare person who that's been a, a dual interest for you, I guess, pretty much since the beginning of your writing career. Yeah, and no, I always um, I love figuring out how text works inside of computers, how stories can get told inside of computers. And that's kind of just been a continual theme. Uh, and I mean, it's fun that people want to talk about it now. I mean, but for many years, nobody wanted to talk about it or they would quickly walk away if I mentioned it. So, so it just is a thing I love, right? Like, and that's, that's, and I also really enjoy and love writing. And so it's sort of fun. I've been able to put the two together. What, um, what kind of a reader were you as a a young man? My dad's an English prof. So I was actually, I I got handed some pretty good and, and kind of obscure stuff. Like, uh, Joyce carries the horse's mouth when I was like 14 or 15 or or all the Roberts and Davies uh, like the fifth business trilogy and all that stuff so I, I got to see some interesting stuff along with uh, I actually didn't read crap until years later when I truly learned to enjoy like sci-fi and, and stuff like that so I had a good sort of slightly snooty upbringing Did you set out to become a writer? I never figured anyone would let me do that. I mean, it, it just sort of like that wasn't really a possibility. And uh, uh, so everything has kind of been by accident. And I, I think part of it, too, like I always am, uh, I'm always working on the uh, the tech part because, I, you know, they can take away the writing at any time, but I can always be a computer programmer. So at what point did you start publishing your own writing? Uh, I had just, well, actually, I started uh, publishing little websites in, how would be like 95, like pretty early days, 94. What else were you doing at the time that you knew how to publish a website in 1995? Oh, I was in college. And so I, I just remember, like, the web showed up. We were all using Gopher, uh, which was like the web, but it was on port 70 instead of port 80, and it was just a big list of text files. And uh, the web showed up, and... and uh, I was like, oh, this is great. I was really excited because it was hypertext and everyone had been talking about hypertext forever. And uh, like my whole life. And um, so uh, I started to build little web pages. And I think like the first one I did, I'm trying to remember what the first page was, but I remember my college roommate and I had done a radio show on the college radio station in upstate New York, uh, and it was, we'd faked the death, the assassination of Jerry Garcia. It was soon after he'd uh, died. And we had, like, we, we'd done it on a four-track, and so I took some of those, uh, some samples, and turned them into to little sound files and put them up on a page about the Jerry Garcia assassination. And it was one of those things where, like, because there were only about nine or ten pages on the entire Internet, like it was mentioned in the Philadelphia Inquirer as like these idiots think that, and people would write us the angriest possible emails. At which point I would immediately immediately reply and say that we had revoked their email account because um, nobody knew, and they were all a bunch of deadheads anyway. So it was just really it wasn't like they were really up to date on current IT. 
uh, maybe with the exception of like John Perry Barlow, but he didn't write. Anyway, the, the people who wrote, uh, I would write back. And then I would, because I was a real in, kind of an annoying person, they would then completely lose their crap and send me these emails. And I would then write back and explain that Jerry Garcia had been quite the prankster himself and like settled down deadheads. And most of the time they would then think that was kind of cool, actually, that I had kind of pranked them thoroughly. Um, so that was really fun. I really liked that. And I put up uh, a little page for myself with my resume and stuff like that. And then kind of stumbled into New York. And then, then uh, there wasn't a, the word blog didn't exist. Right. People called them uh, web journals or diaries. And it was a very, very strange community, kind of held together by listservs and, and so on and so forth. And... Uh, there's still some friends from back in the day who are, are out and about. Um, but that was so, so, I mean, it just sort of totally made sense to me arriving in New York City, getting an HTML job in 95, 96, that I would then put up a little web page. And at that point, did you have literary ambitions for yourself? or? Were well, you... I mean, I, you know, I was, I was 22, so of course <laughs> I did. And of course, I was probably the greatest writer that you'd ever meet and just no one could respect or understand me and uh, uh, that turned out not to be true but what was good was that made me learn a lot of HTML to, to try to prove that point and it made me learn some programming because there was no blogging software and so I had to figure out how to manage my text files. For, for people who are listening um, you may be picturing that Paul's writing is um, you know primarily like O'Reilly guides to programming but that couldn't be further from, from the case. Um, you've written about your wife's artificial insemination and uh, in vitro fertilization. You've recently published an essay, uh, I think that was a SVA graduation uh, speech that you gave. Right, it's called uh, 10 Timeframes. It's in a publication called Contents Magazine. Um, and that was about, I mean, that was actually about user experience and, and sort of designers, like how they can measure and, and think about time. But no, I mean, my home base is, is still the humanities. I think that tech is, is an aspect of that. You know, I did a book review for Slate not too long ago where I scanned in the whole book and then sort of made a graph of the components of the book, like a chart, and was able to kind of quickly skip over the the book to make kind of check that I was accurate in, in making my graph. And so, I mean, that's sort of very, just, just almost excruciating to even hear myself talk about it. But it was like, that was using a little of my nerd skills to do something straight up and humanistic. However, you know, right now, for instance, uh, code has been a really good way to procrastinate uh, and avoid writing. Like, I'm just, just don't want to do too much. I keep writing a little content management systems to replace the one that I have now. And uh, that helps me avoid actually having to put any content into them. So that, that's been great. Um, yeah, I think that they, they both, I don't know what, which itch gets scratched. I mean, sometimes I, I, usually I write because I feel that I need to or I publicly proclaim that I'm going to. Um, you know, there's kind of nothing more fun than dinking around with computers. So it's just a great way to just blow years of your life. When you write a piece like uh, the piece you just wrote about rotary telephones, does a part of you want to sit down and spend a year writing a book about the rotary telephone, or are you sort of satisfied by the blog haiku? Well, that's the thing. It's great to just do the blog, right, because it's just 
I don't know, you know. If you'd asked me before I sat down and wrote that piece if I knew something about rotary telephones, I'd be like, I'm basically expert level. Like, yeah. you can put me on a stage. I'll tell you about rotary telephones. And then I don't know shit about rotary telephones. Like, you put, I sat down and started to write about it, and I was like, I know nothing. Um, I've come up with this assignment for myself, and I'm an idiot. And so, no, the truth is, do I want to spend a year writing about it? Sure. Oh, my God. That would be a blast. Like, you could just do anything. You could just be rotary telephones, then you just go to town for a year. And at the end of the year, you're like, I'll give you the advance back because I didn't write anything. Like, that <laughs> is exactly how I would do that. But the, um, no, that's a fun part of it. Like, and that's actually what I, when I, when I threatened to start a blog again, that is something that I really miss. My career uh, got more serious, in quotes, around... 2003, 2004, and um, I started to internalize what editors wanted and a lot of anxiety around that, and should I write a blog post or not, and then I started to write these sort of serious essayistic pieces. And, but what I, I kind of would like to get back to is just that sort of like, what do I know about this? Oh my God, it turns out to not be that much. But that's fun anyway. We're going to just like, it, it's part of being in the community. And it's a little bit slower than the stuff that's emerged, like Twitter and Tumblr, because you are actually taking some time to be just a little bit more exhaustive. Like, maybe it's 500 words, maybe it's 1,000 right. words, instead of uh, a picture of a tweet. But the cool thing there is that you've gotten something out. Like, I, I have actually told the world everything I know about rotary telephones and, with, with you know, certain exceptions. I've left out some very important facts that... You know, if you if you want to, I can detail at any time. But the um, please don't. Yeah, <laughs> this this podcast is about to get awesome. <laughs> Just buckle up. Um, the thing I really miss about blogging, um, and this is in specific contrast to really in both directions, to sort of Twitter and other sort of more tight form, really fast, too long, didn't read, like just have to get it out. Media where things have to be zippy and ideally are just a picture. Um, for, and, and then also kind of on the other side, so I'm thinking about this really fast social media and I'm also thinking about really slow, like slow burn magazine and, and web publication pieces that are much more formal is that you can get away with murder on a blog and you can still get a very good readership and you can tweak with and mess with people and play little jokes. And there's like in that piece that I wrote last night, there is a paragraph that I'm very proud of about, uh, which is just a narrative of what it would be like for your parents to have sexual intercourse. And that's the thing, like anyone with any sense, like if I've been an editor, if, if anyone had turned that in, I'd be like, ha, yeah, no, no, uh-uh. That is the, um, that's the best part is like anyone, including me, presented with that piece and this lengthy digression about your parents having sex. Yeah would just be like, oh, no. Um, it's funny or, or not, or yeah. you suck or whatever, but let's just not do that. Let's not ruin everything for the sake of this bullshit. That's right. kind of like, and that's, that's how I would feel about it, too. If you were an editor. That if day. I was an editor or yeah. just even an adult. But, like, I'm able to get away with that because it's my blog. And, right. and uh, there is a lot of, like, I mean, there genuinely is an internal second-guessing process where it's like, all of the corporations that I end up working with, all the sort of, like, you know, I have an adult life and I have little children. And so there is a part of me that's like, do I want to write about parents having sex on the internet? Yeah. But another part of me that's like... Or eh. about your struggles to have those kids. Well, there's, yeah, but see, that's, 
that would weird me out way more than the uh, than the uh, discussion during the rotary telephone, which I would have just not read based on the title if I was your child. But I think I would be interested um, in, an es- in an essay about uh, in vitro fertilization were I your child. Oh, as, well, a, as a grown adult. I don't know. You know, they've got first of all. Kids never care about anything their parents did, unless it's really creepy or obvious. But something public like that, where you're like, "Oh, I wrote a piece," like something like whatever, whatever you did was lame. I already knew you were lame before you told me that. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, you published a piece on the internet because they're going to be like, "Well, I have my own cross-branded media channel, yeah, and I sell a line of pony avatars, and I'm nine, so you know, nice job, Dad." Yeah, and then they'll cut me a check, and I'll go home. Yeah, like that's you know, which which is basically get some royalties off them. I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. But now nah, there's no. I mean, the great thing about writing is that nobody cares. Not really. It's really hard to get people upset enough to like fire you or, or unless you just go out and hit hot buttons, it's to, to get them truly angry. It's really interesting talking to you about this because, uh, if I were to describe my conversation with. Other, other writers that I've spoken to recently, I would describe it as, why does no one care? And you seem very comfortable with no one caring. Yeah, it's okay. I, you know, look, I, it, I don't like this sort of take your medicine aspect with journalism and publishing right now. I mean, the way I look at this stuff is that it works for people or it doesn't. And it kind of, the kind of internal model I have is around like territories and geography, which is a little abstract, but I'll try to explain it in like 20 seconds, which is that... Go. Okay. So the basic idea here is that like, you don't really read a newspaper to preserve journalism or, or save great journalism or you know, keep the newspaper going. You read it because it gives you a sense of power control over the environment that, that you're in and, and actually sort of helps you define what your personal territory is and what the things are that matter for you. As long as the products serve that need, as long as books allow you to explore spaces that it's otherwise really hard to explore and so on, I think people will continue to read them. But at the same time, there's an aspect where I'm just like, well, they're, they're just not doing it. Like, I don't want to, you know, I, the, other, the other thing, too, is just like publishing companies are, they're what they are. But my gosh, just, there's so much just kind of just straight up crap that goes out. And there's always been a lot of crap. But it's like, you know, most books aren't really edited. Like, an awful lot just kind of get a copy editing. I mean, there's just kind of a lot of sort of shoveled-out lit right now. Well, I mean, they're not sacred. And the right to um, the right to write and publish or read is something that we've sort of built up as a sort of a quasi-religion uh, among certain circles. Tribal dynamics. There are a lot of tribal dynamics about who gets to be a writer or not. And I find that sort of an interesting sort of jumping off point because you have been involved with a totally self-published, self-coded, self-CMSed blog, but you've also been the web editor of Harper's Mm -hmm. for five or six years? I was there for five years full-time. Five years. One of the most venerable uh, literary institutions in America. Mm-hmm. For um, for those who haven't visited um, Harper's website, with a subscription, I believe, yeah? you got to be a subscriber. If you're a subscriber yeah. to Harper's, then you're able to access 
real scans of going back into the 1800s. Yeah, right? all the way back to June 1850. That's From issue one. Any any page that's ever appeared in Harper's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's the whole the whole thing. There's some covers missing. There's some pages missing, and some things that are that are ripped. But those probably bug me more than they would bug any user. Um, I also like archives. I like dealing with historical data and. To be honest, a lot of it was kind of lying around. There was a great index of the whole thing going back to 1850 that had been done and kind of was not being used. It was being updated, but you couldn't, you know, it wasn't publicly available. And uh, there were, and I was actually able, Bennington College, I, uh, the librarian there was an old friend, and, and she was like, well, look, if you give us access to what you create, we'll give you all of our copies of Harper's, because libraries are actually... You know, it's a little sad, but they're really trying to get shelf space back. So they're like, well, if we can get rid of all of our Harpers, but get um, get digital access, that's great. So some young woman whose name I've forgotten drove down and, and, and unloaded a bunch of books with every volume ever. And uh, we cut the edges and we scanned them. And... Then I spent about 18 months just writing code and looking at old issues and figuring out how to align a quarter million pages to a bibliography. Did you consider the possibility of doing it as like text instead of scans, or was that totally off the radar? At that so the, the, the issue there is that um, getting things turned into text is very, very expensive. Yeah, this is a shocker to the general population who believes that you can run something through a scanner and get a, a text readout. Right, but then you can't, you can kind of do that, and that's great if you want to search for things on a page or stuff like that, but what you can't do is know, let's say there's three articles on a page and they're split up with one little line and they each have different headlines, there's no way to know where an article begins or ends. Yeah. And so, um, so that can be really tricky. And the other issue is that, uh, so that's that's one problem. The other issue is that what magazines and what publishers in general own in terms of their archives and their legacy are the images of um, of the pages, of the issues, say, themselves. So the New Yorker and the Nat- National Geographic, Harper's, these magazines own the visual representation of their own publication all the way back. But pulling different stories out and putting them into different digital versions is actually something that incurs licensing issues and so on. So what you'll see is that places with archives will often pull out an entire issue and then promote one piece from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you go and you figure out your rights and permissions. The New York Review of Books, I think they just called everybody because everybody was kind of, for the most part, a lot of their writers are still alive, which is a Which is bonus. not available for a lot of that Harper stuff. Well, you know, a lot of people are dead, and they were very. We were, we were very resource constrained. And some of, I mean, I guess it was about 1920. Now is public domain at this point. Yeah, it's like 23 on, yeah. or 23 and prior. I think this is something a lot of people don't know about magazine journalism is that, for the most part, rights revert to the writers within three or six months on a yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah, that's the classic deal. So you know, now more more and more magazines are actually very clear about their digital rights. They have to publish things on their websites where they never go away. But in general, too, if they're going to anthologize you or put you in a book or sell your work uh, via, or, or if your work is going to be accessed via various academic indexers like EBSCO, um, money goes into it, authors guild accounts. And it's a very, very complicated mess of accounting. 
I mean, I, th I think I think that that is particularly interesting because a lot of people wonder why this work that they read in the 1970s is not available online. And in a lot of cases, that's not actually the magazine's fault, per se. No, it's also just very expensive. It's expensive to index things in such a way that they can be used. It's, it can be very cheap to scan things if you uh, can find a spare copy of a magazine and slice the edges. But it, it's, if you don't do that, like that can be five cents a page, right? But if you don't do that, it can be a buck or two a page to get hand scanning. I mean, that's actually come down a lot in the last five years for various technical reasons that are probably a little boring. But at the same time, uh, it's hard. It's still pretty hard to get really high-resolution images of pages uh, without spending some money. And it's very hard to tell a computer what's on those pages. It's a, um, it's a process that we've been looking into in, in running long form because... There are a lot of archival pieces that we would love to recommend, uh, some of which authors have asked us to post, and they're only available usually in a poorly scanned PDF or like a Google Books kind of format. And uh, in my own research, sort of the cheapest way that I was able to find to, to digitize stuff is basically you send it to two people in India or wherever the cheapest typing labor is now available. They both type it. Mm -hmm. And then they're instantly compared, and you correct the sort of differences in the two versions, and that's it. That's that's modern digitalization. No, that's that is as good as it gets, and that's um, uh, that's also great. Except that if you multiply that by eighty, a hundred thousand, you know, two hundred thousand articles, it still adds up. I, you know, I think it's maybe fifteen dollars an article or right. so for so, a for a feature. Right, fifteen or twenty dollars. So you easily can get in the hundreds of thousands of dollars with any normal large archive of historical stuff. And I, I think the thing that I, I really learned is that to deal with very large amounts of information, you have to get used to multiplying very quickly. Like, oh, you know, it's only it only takes a minute to bring a page into the system and correct the angle, and you know get the levels right or whatever, but 250,000 minutes is an enormous amount of time. And uh, it's very easy dealing with individual pages or minutes of audio or whatever to, if you do the multiples, to realize that you have years and years of labor ahead of you unless you find ways to be more efficient. You know, whether it's running a couple, com you know, a good example actually is the times when they were dealing with their archive, which is, you know, unbelievably big. If I remember, what they did was uh, they used cloud computing and they used Amazon and they just spun up probably hundreds of machines, fed them the archive and had them you know, run over the scans and extract as much text as they could to be used in searches. And that was, like they, that was their way of, of dividing that task. Right. You know, we were talking about YouTube before and one of the sort of weird byproducts of YouTube, which I think most people think of as, you know, a place to post funny videos, is that it's a probably the best archive of recorded sound and video in the world right now. It's good. Archive.org is good, too. But you, YouTube actually has the, the broadest. The broadest. Like, uh, okay, this obscure early 60s psych song probably is on YouTube. Yes. Do you Stuff that is actually copyrighted. And, yeah. Yeah. Anything, anything that's got a copyright, you can pretty much find on YouTube. Do you think that a similar system for text will ever emerge? 
You can say you can not comment on that one. No, I'm just thinking. I, I don't. I've never thought about that problem before. Um, I mean, it's strange that we can call up our um, uh, motion picture and audio history, but we can't call up our textual history. In the yeah, same I, I think it would just be a. I, I don't really actually understand the scope of the problem to to make a good assessment, but I, I think what you're really talking about is. Um, the weird advantage for a lot of that stuff is that uh, the enormous organizations that are powerful and would like to sue you and the enormous organization that was holding on to YouTube. So by the ones that want to sue you, I'm thinking like the music and film companies, like right. you know, Universal or, or you know, Paramount or whatever. Uh, and then they're dealing with Google. Like you can have 20 lawyers sit in a room and figure that out. And then publishing, I mean, where do you even start? Like, there are, there are a couple enormous consolidated places that, uh, you know, sort of run everything now, like Heshat or, you know, et cetera. But, but the, um, there's just so much text with so many different rights and permissions issues and so many people who kind of own it. There are interesting gaps in the audiovisual corpus, by the way, like especially what I've been looking for for a while is a good source of daily news from the 30s to, to the 80s, let's say. That doesn't exist. Like Those archives are not online in, in any way because, of course, nobody videotaped them. Right. People have videotapes of every Sesame Street song, but nobody has the news from 1978. It's like people are crazy, but they're not quite crazy enough. Yeah, like there's, well, I mean, you're actually probably right. Like there's someone with a stack of VHS tapes. Like that episode of Hoarders will be the one where we're like, this is great. We just need to call that person. Don't try to help them. We'll come and get those VHS tapes and we want them to keep recording. Um, but the, yeah, no, so there are, there are, I think, gaps, but any sort of weird pop phenomenon gets percolated out that way. But writing doesn't really work the same way. I mean, there's a couple articles, like, you know, Frank Sinatra has a cold, sure. stuff like that. But but in general, like, that interesting piece that's suddenly relevant again because that guy died or, or yep. something. Gone. Like, yeah, nobody is, nobody's been thinking about that. And it's really like, you know, a couple old editors and the Google, the Google, that, that lets us know that that even existed. I think remembering it is kind of a new thing. It's interesting what parts of the past sort of filter through and which which parts are really excluded and the the sort of technological reasons for it. Um, What what are your most famous pieces, at least to people I know, is um, the web is a customer service medium, Mm -hmm. which is about the way that we've uh, we've tried the, the different industries have tried to make the web like themselves. So the newspaper sees industry sees the web as a giant newspaper. Um, what are the other examples that I can no longer <laughs> call to mind? So I mean that's actually sort of a classic one. Or, or for a long time, I remember in the '90s, like TV companies would show up at web companies and be like, "We need to bring television in the right." You know, the internet is a big TV station. Yeah. Um, and how all of those are in some way of flawed ways of looking at the web and, and that the web is the web. You know, has anything sort of changed your perspective? So, no, it was published, I, so I think it was published about a year ago, um, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. Nothing has changed my perspective on that. I actually do think that the web, so the, the point of that is that the web really shines when it functions in a kind of customer service role and that the fundamental question of the web is why wasn't I consulted? Yes. And 
that that's what people, when they read the Times and comment and when they are on message boards and so on, that's what's in the back of their head. It's what's in the back of, of my head, even though I try to manage it. And that that is what the, the web really shines at. And so I haven't seen any evidence that that's not what's going on. I mean, the web is a great transmission mechanism for all kinds of writing and communication, but, you know, I mean, it's, I'm in theory going to start blogging again. And uh, the reason I'm doing it is that I, I, I sort of feel that people I know are saying that I should, and then I'm going on Twitter and seeing what they say about the fact that I am writing a blog means. And it's all very kind of horrible at one level, but also feels very familiar and comforting. And uh, the key thing about all of it, though, is that there is this kind of network of like gentle taps on the shoulder, like, hey, I see that you're doing that. And, uh, ah, you know, this is good. Or like, no, you, you got that wrong. And, and there's all these mechanisms like Twitter yeah. that exist for people to tell you, like, no, nah, I made a little mistake there. Or I hate you. Yeah, you're, um, the the rotary phones piece has a couple of sort of Twitter corrections appended yeah. to it right now. About I love that. Though. That's the phone. that's the best part. It's like you have to kind of you act like it's so natural, which I'm very impressed by. That uh, oh, of course I would correct my piece. You know, the next but that's, day. Based that's on. the thing. I mean, I've been you know like you don't have the buffer. You don't have the safe zone of fact checking and editors, right? And I'm going to stay away from topics that if I get something seriously wrong, uh, I will be at terrible risk or I will damage someone's existence. Like, I am not going to write about something where I would expose a secret or... Like, I'm very, very, very careful. Blogs are rough. They're a rough place to do journalism. When I see people do journalism on blogs, it seems like they they can get in trouble very easily because... um, Good journalism just takes so many phone calls and so much research, and somebody should should be looking over your shoulder. Uh, it doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, but uh, it is, it's kind of a high-stakes game. And my God, if you're doing anything that people have opinions on, people have opinions on everything online, but anything like politics or gen, issues around gender or people, you know, various kinds of rights, people are, like, they're ready to get you. They're ready yeah. to take you down. So you, re, you need to be careful. And... Um, at the same time, with the blogging, with, with writing a piece, you can just kind of get it up there, and people will be like, oh, hey, you missed this, you missed that. They're incredibly well-intentioned about it, and they're, they're actually just going, they are assuming, and in my case, very rightfully so, that I'd like to know. Yeah. That I want the detail and that I would like to fix it, and it, it's actually really fun to credit them. And it, it act, to me, that's more valuable than comments, like... Other people responding and put pieces that they write, people finding corrections and, and kind of just figuring, helping you figure out how to improve stuff. In terms of that, that web as a customer service medium, I mean, I think you're probably the, the most natural about that of anyone I've, I've talked to. And for someone who's writing, I, I really hate to do these questions where I'm like, what would you say to someone? But what would you say to someone who is a little bit more web phobic and is basically having to publish on the web right now. I mean, the web is not a newspaper, but a lot of people from newspapers are going to be publishing on the web in the next 10 years or for the last 10 years. 
what you know, do what, you I, say? what I have found is that very rarely am I asked to say something to them, and it's far, far more likely that they will say something to me <laughs> about how the web is bad and everything is bad and everything is going to hell and life is pointless and we should all just die. And so, you know, I mean, I, I've kind of heard it all over the last 15 years. I've heard about how the internet is ruining publishing. And so, I, honestly, there's a few things going on there. One is like, I don't necessarily know that history is going to write this story and point to the internet and go, that ruined publishing. There are a lot of mass market sort of economic factors, consolidation, the fact that just a lot of crap gets shoveled, issues of professionalism and so on, like in how people ran their own show, that may also have been factors. So there's a little bit of a defense mechanism where I'm like, oh, God, again. and the, the money stuff is one stuff, but I, I'm particularly interested in this, this sort of customer service medium. What do you say to someone who who doesn't want to deliver customer service? Well, this is one of the really tricky things, right? Because at a certain point, every writer, every writer, as far as I know, maybe not Jonathan Friends or Malcolm Gladwell, but uh, you know anyone who kind of is doing it and making a few bucks and, and, and trying to make it work, has to do a lot of crap that they're like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I want to review these razor blades. I don't know if I really want to write that story about the, you know, the, uh, just all the random crap that you do throughout a career. And so I think that's actually totally fair. Like, if, if what you want to be doing is writing personal essays about your experiences scuba diving, like, you really actually should be doing that. That is important, and I hope you can do it. Like, just like I hope that I can, there's a bunch of stuff I need to write that I just need to get down sooner or later. But uh, if you are being called upon, you know, I'm not actually at that point, nothing but sympathy. If you have to like deal with a bunch of crappy web stuff and like update like some stupid blog and you're editing stupid bloggers or you have to, um, I don't know, like go and, you know, compile the top 10 recipes with kittens in them or just that sucks. And it's it's weird because I don't know who's reading it. Someone's reading it. And there's probably also a really sad part there, which is that someone is obviously getting some enjoyment out of that content, one would hope. Uh, but you just described to me a process whereby every writer has to just do a bunch of crap to to keep writing. Yeah. And I think what I would say is, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or that's the human condition. There aren't a lot of jobs where you don't have to do a lot of bullshit. Yeah. My personal rule in life was that if I could find a job that was three days bullshit and two days kind of okay, that was going to be okay. And do you have a job like that now? Yeah, I think I do. I, yeah. Hey, this has been the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Special thanks to ARC90 for hosting Paul and I. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Uh, My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? 
I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 